Hello, and welcome to Research and Justice for All, a podcast series from Health Affairs, sponsored by CVS Health. I'm your co-host, Dr. Sri Chagaturu, Chief Medical Officer at CVS Health. And I'm co-host, Dr. Jonay Khaldun, Chief Health Equity Officer at CVS Health. On today's show, we're going to talk about disparities in mental health. We'll be joined by Dr. Nicole Christian Brathwaite, CEO and founder of WellMind Psychiatry and Consulting, and head of medical and clinical strategy at Headway, a tech-enabled company that has created ways for people to get quality in-network mental health care. Dr. Christian Brathwaite provides expert consultation, assessment, and strategic planning to organizations and hospitals around diversity, cultural humility, and health disparities. We'll discuss with her the impact disparities in mental health have had on historically marginalized communities and about strategic approaches that can help improve mental health outcomes. You know, Shri, this is such an important conversation. There's no question we currently have a mental health crisis in this country. We we know that one in five U.S. adults experience a mental illness every year. There's been an increasing incidence of anxiety and depression that certainly worsened with the pandemic. And we also know that disparities exist when it comes to access to care and the workforce. And this is certainly something that we at CVS Health are addressing uh, head on with expanding access to mental health services. Managing our mental health and well-being is a topic everyone can relate to. I'm looking forward to our listeners hearing what Nicole had to share with us about how we can make some progress in helping to provide equitable care for mental health. So let's get into it. Here's our interview with Dr. Nicole Christian Brothwaite. Nicole, it's a pleasure to have you here. And I want to start out by asking a question that we have asked all of our guests. As you think about health equity, why is this work important to you? That's a great question. Um, Honestly, I I can say that in particular mental health equity, uh, but certainly health equity in general has always been a part of my life. Uh, The first few years of my life, uh, my mother and I were homeless. And during that time, my mom really struggled with depression. And so dealing with financial challenges and housing challenges, and then on top of that, struggling with depression and not being able to find or access treatment, not having the health insurance to be even able to access treatment, it certainly, um, even as a very young child, opened my eyes to um, a lot of the the disparities that existed. Um, But despite my mom's struggles and the challenges that we faced, she actually started a nonprofit organization called Dignity Housing uh, that supported women and families to to find permanent and stable housing. Um, But based on her own struggles, she realized finding housing isn't enough. There there really needed to be additional supports and um, addressing additional barriers. and, And one of those being untreated mental illness. So since childhood, I've, I've watched my mom advocate and fight for mental health and health equity. Um, and then as an adult, I had my own personal struggles with postpartum depression after my first son. Um, and at the time, I was a child and adolescent psychiatry fellow at Mass General. So I was a psychiatrist at one of the best hospitals in the world. And I struggled 
to find treatment. I first even struggled to identify the fact that I was dealing with postpartum depression. It was actually my, my son's pediatrician that pointed it out to me. Um, and then even once I acknowledged that I was dealing with postpartum depression, I didn't know where to find a, a psychiatrist that, or therapist that would be willing to treat postpartum depression. And despite my resources and my mentors and the access that I had, it took months for me to find a therapist. Um, and even after finding a therapist, she was 45 minutes away. Um, unfortunately, I had the support, but I imagine, you know, being someone that doesn't have that access, that didn't have access to transportation or, or didn't have um, the the knowledge of the system, how, how could they possibly access treatment? And my, my postpartum depression, honestly, it got to the point where um, I was questioning the value of my life. And so I, I know that without treatment and without medication, my story would have turned out very differently. Thank you for sharing your personal lived experience. It's so incredibly powerful and it's so clear how that drives the work that you do today. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Nicole, for, for being so vulnerable and sharing your your lived experience. It, it certainly, I'm sure, resonates with a lot of our, our listeners. So you've worked in a lot of spaces, um, have an incredible background and in, in professionally and personally. Um, you've worked at a tech-enabled company, Headway, and also as a practicing psychiatrist. So, so tell us, tell our listeners more about Headway what the company does, and what specific challenge in the healthcare system does Headway aim to solve? Absolutely. So Headway is one of the the nation's largest network of therapists, psychiatrists, and nurse practitioners who actively accept insurance. And I say actively uh, because I'm sure many of us who have looked for a therapist um, on an insurance panel, we're not clear who's alive, who's accepting insurance, um, who's taking patients. Um, And so Headway really prioritizes finding uh, and supporting those therapists and psychiatrists and nurse practitioners um, to to really um, support patients who are looking for uh, mental health providers. Um, And we know that nearly half of all people who need mental health services can't access it. Um, and I, I, there are a couple of stats that, that show only about 30% of outpatient mental health clinicians actually take insurance. Um, and certainly, you know, living in Massachusetts, there are a number of clinicians and therapists and psychiatrists, but very few who take insurance. Um, and Headway was, was really founded under the hypothesis that if you make it easy for clinicians to accept insurance, they will. Uh, this is not the official headway model, but I, I say if you build it, they will come. Um, you know, if you really do make it easy and accessible for clinicians, they want a more diverse patient population. They want to expand their offerings, um, and being able to remove some of that administrative burden certainly makes it easy. Um, and I think our, our growth has proven that that is the truth. We've we now have over twenty two thousand behavioral health clinicians um, who utilize, who actively utilize our platform and um, do about 4 million appointments every year. Thank you for sharing that. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, how Headway helps your providers specifically in removing those, those administrative barriers? Tell us a little more about that. Headway uses um, a technology platform. Um, again, that, that, so the, the value add is taking out that administrative burden, taking out some of the, the headaches. So we help with uh, things like scheduling 
uh, credentialing with insurance companies, um, the actual claims and billing, the revenue cycle man- management. We we guarantee uh, payment every two weeks for our clinicians. Um, we certainly help them in um, partnering again with different payers and insurance companies and, and building their practice uh, as a personal story. I have a small private practice. And prior to starting with Headway, I only accepted one insurance. I just didn't have the time or resources um, or support to accept additional insurances and and manage the the claims and billing. But since I've joined Headway, I now accept four different insurances. And I don't have to worry about that claims and billings component. I don't have to to worry about um, ensuring that the the program that I'm using is actually submitting the billing appropriately. And and I'm able to, to let go of some of that administrative burden and, and frankly, opening my schedule and myself up to, to doing what I've been trained to do and supporting patients. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's something a lot of people don't uh, really appreciate or understand is the challenges just administratively of being a practicing uh, clinician. So so thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I agree. And, and maybe just to take that a step further, how I can see how that will help access and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how Headway has then uh, addressed health equity uh, with all of these uh, resources and solutions for practices. Absolutely. And, you know, certainly a, a part of health, health equity is expanding access. We, we've we certainly seen that over the last couple of years with COVID, with the, the significant increase in demand and need for, for mental health services. So the first way that, that Headway is addressing um, inequities in health is ensuring that um, there's availability, that there are clinicians um, who accept insurance and have that have that availability and where people can realistically get an appointment with uh, in a couple of days or at most two weeks. Um, Headway also prioritizes recruiting and supporting a diverse population of clinicians. About 40% of our clinician network is non-white. Um, and a large percent of them also uh, speak other languages, about 40 plus different languages. And so when a patient comes to Headway and they're looking for a clinician, we're really hoping that not only are they able to find a clinician that has expertise in um, the specific mental illness that they're struggling with, but they can also find people that have expertise in LGBTQI or identify as a person of color um, and really providing and supporting that patient choice and voice. Thank you for sharing that. And when we look at our own data, data from our recent CVS Health Harris Poll Dimensions of Healthcare survey, it does show a lot of what you're talking about, that historically marginalized communities have heightened concerns about their mental health compared to other communities. For example, Hispanic populations had the highest number of individuals concerned about their mental health or the mental health of someone in their household or a close friend. That was 63%. And this is 19 percentage points higher than white population, which was at 44%, and 14 percentage points more than the total population who had concerns. And I know that's a lot of percentages and statistics, but hopefully it represents that you know, this is a major concern for historically marginalized communities. So I was wondering, maybe just stepping back, if you could talk to us about the disparities you see when it comes to these communities and with respect to mental health. 
there, I mean, frankly, we could, we could just, we could be here all day just going through the, the different disparities in healthcare and even more specifically mental health care. Um, I am a, a child psychiatrist and uh, as I mentioned, after my own struggles with postpartum depression, I um, sought additional training in perinatal mental health. So I'll speak a little bit about examples in those specific populations. Um, so for example, when looking at mental illness in perinatal or postpartum Black women, we, we find that Black women suffer from a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder at twice the rate of white women. Um, white women tend to um, suffer from per a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder around 20 to 25%. Black women, it's about 44% of Black women during, during or after pregnancy are dealing with some form of pregnancy-related mental illness. Um, and frankly, postpartum depression is the most common complication of pregnancy. And of course, suicide is a significant risk factor. But when we're looking at the rates of treatment and the rates of screening, white women are twice as likely to be screened and appropriately treated for a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder. So Black women are twice as likely to suffer and suffer with severe illness and half as likely to actually be screened for it. Um, you know, in general, rates of mental illness don't differ vastly between people of color and uh, white Americans, but certainly the rates of screening, the severity of symptoms because of delays in diagnosis, appropriate treatment and outcomes, those, those certainly uh, differ and are much worse in people of color, particularly African Americans and Latinos. You know, let, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh the, the workforce here. Um, you talk about kind of similar incidents, but differences in, in, in severity and, and access to treatment. So, so what specific training or education needs to happen specifically when it comes to the healthcare workforce? Um, what, what kind of impact would that have and what needs to happen there? Honestly, there, there needs to, there needs, this needs to be a priority from, from top to bottom. So even starting at the individual level and going up to institutional, um, systemic, even our um, professional organizations. Uh, I'm sure many, you may have experienced something similar, but when we're thinking about DEI training or um, understanding specific populations, those tend to be one-off lectures. So you'll have a, a DEI lecture versus ensuring that um, diversity and equity are integrated throughout the training curriculum for, for medical students, for residents, for therapists, for, for any trainee, um, there needs to be that emphasis. And, you know, even thinking beyond mental health, when you look at, for example, dermatology, often the, the subjects that trainees are learning about are white patients. So they're not learning about what these skin diseases look like in someone with darker skin. Um, and so, you know, as a result, the, the aftermath is that often these diagnoses are, are missed. In, in people of color, or, you know, certainly still we see that people of color, particularly African-Americans, don't receive adequate pain control. And studies show that physicians still believe, some physicians still believe that Black people have thicker skin. And so they don't need that the same level of, of pain control or support. And so ultimately, in the same way that we teach about measurement-based care or evidence-based medicine, that the integration of um, what African-Americans may present with when they're depressed or how um, Southeast Asian populations may present with more somatic symptoms, that has to be a core component of every curriculum. 
Thank you for that. And, and, and what role, I mean, you touched on this earlier, but tell us a little more about the importance of diversity when it comes to the healthcare workforce. Absolutely. And again, in, in every specialty, there's evidence showing that when the workforce um, is more diverse, outcomes for marginalized individuals improve. Um, again, looking at um, women, he- women's health care um, or perinatal or postpartum care, when African-American women have an African-American physician, um, outcomes are improved both, both for the mother and, and the child. Um, and even and same with in behavioral health, there are certainly studies um, finding that um, patients of color tend to be diagnosed more often with schizophrenia or psychosis, even when presenting with symptoms of depression. Uh, patients of color are more likely to be uh, given an injectable medication. They're more likely to be restrained. They're more likely to be given um, a medication that's older and may produce more side effects. And so having that representation, um, one is just in general for the, the working environment. Again, studies show that having a more diverse workforce or working environment improves morale and improves outcomes overall. Um, but then also having that diversity ensures uh, better outcomes for that, those marginalized groups. Um, and again, hopefully decreases some of the inequity that we consistently see. So Nicole, as you talked about the differential uh, use of drugs in different communities and populations. One that just comes to mind at the time that we're recording this, there's a new postpartum depression drug. And this is one that you talked very personally and professionally about uh, in this conversation. This new drug, we don't know what the pricing is, but the pricing of the existing injectable is north of $30,000 for treatment. And, you know, the new oral medication may be in that same ballpark how do you think about drug pricing and what that role is in in health equity and access to medications and therapy? Thank you for that question. I um, unfortunately, I, I think the the trend will be the same. There is an assumption um, that people of color can't afford medication, um, and well-meaning or not, some clinicians will just err on the side of of giving a patient what may be considered a less expensive medication. Um, But again, without even making the effort, we may not be providing the most up-to-date evidence-based treatment. Um, And then ultimately long-term harming that patient. I know a number of pharmaceutical companies do offer um, reduced pricing for for periods of time, but frequently it's three months or six months. And so again, a patient may start or initiate treatment, but then they can't afford it long-term. Um, and so I am concerned that only a certain demographic um, or people of a certain uh, socioeconomic status will be able to afford the medication and others, unfortunately, will be excluded. Um, but I, I, that's not honestly much different than, than what we continue to see in medicine. Nicole, thank you so much for sharing your perspective on uh, drug pricing. And we couldn't agree more that we need to continue to drive down pricing uh, for therapies to make sure that they're broadly available uh, and equitably available. And I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about your background and training in adolescent and child mental health. We've seen some alarming trends in the space recently 
According to a 2021 CDC study, 44% of high school students are reporting that they feel sad or hopeless in the previous year. And you've committed your career to child and adolescent mental health uh, and have founded WellMind Psychiatry and Consulting. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about WellMinds and then also what are the trends that you're seeing when it comes to youth and mental health? Absolutely. Thank you for that question. Uh, I started WellMinds in 2018. Uh, I love working with children. I love working with families. But I, I realized um, there, I, I felt like I needed to do more. The, the individual work that I do uh, continues to be my passion. But I, I found that ultimately children spend the majority of their time in school. And that's often where we can intervene um, if a child is identified early and screened appropriately. But that's also where things could potentially go south, where instead of being referred for therapy or support, a child is um, sent for disciplinary action or referred to the school to prison pipeline. And so I made a decision uh, to really commit more of my time to supporting and working in environments um, that treat or see or support all children and, and really working to educate um, and offer professional development to the, the staff, the educators, frankly, every adult in the building so that they can um, be that first line of support for, for children struggling with trauma or mental illness. Um, and often the kids who are getting in trouble, it's not because they simply have a behavioral problem. It's often because there's something underlying those those behaviors. Those behaviors are, are simply a form of communication um, and, and helping uh, or hopefully um, using those behaviors to, to better identify how we can support these kids. Um, in terms of looking at trends, um, certainly over the, the last few years, studies have shown that there have been a significant rise in rates of suicide in Black and Latino children. Uh, recently, I, I read that from from 2000 to 2020, um, the rates of suicide in Black children have increased by 78%. And um, again, similar to uh, Black women, Black and Latino youth are less likely to be identified as suicidal and much less likely to receive or be referred for crisis intervention services. And again, they're, they're more likely to be um, disciplined or punished. And some studies show that 88% of Latino youth have unmet mental health needs, but Black and Latino kids are three times more likely to be referred to a resource officer for a behavioral concern. You know, I'll also say there, there's beginning to be a greater understanding of the impact of trauma, particularly since COVID um, and how trauma can impact a child's developing brain and mental health. And much of my work recently has been educating schools on how to become more trauma-sensitive and trauma-informed. And a part of that includes um, understanding what it means to be anti-racist. Thank you so much. You know, as a, as a mother of, of three school-age children, this certainly resonates w with me. Can you tell us a little more about kind of WellMinds and, and how does WellMinds uh, work with the, the school system? And, and what should schools really be doing specifically to address this just alarming uh, crisis when it comes to youth mental health? A part of what WellMinds does is, again, education. So I, I go into schools or school districts and I work with um, the, the teams creating their professional development curriculum. And I ensure that 
there there is that emphasis on understanding trauma, understanding that children of color are more likely to have traumatic experiences. And if we're not careful, school can be one of those traumatic experiences. Um, helping educators recognize and identify signs or symptoms of mental illness or trauma and helping them to, to really put in place systems so that they can have a, a better referral network um, or at least a better process of addressing those behavioral concerns. Um, I, I really push institutions to be self-reflective look at the rates of discipline, who is being referred to the principal's office, what are your rates of suspension, who is being expelled. Um, and 99.9% .9 of the time, it tends to be students of color who are disproportionately represented in those populations. And I, I really challenge um, these institutions to address the problems head on. Um, again, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to, to manage what you don't measure. And so once these schools or these institutions have that data, they can't ignore it. They can't ignore the fact that they are potentially perpetuating harm. Um, and so working with them to actually develop um, a trauma-sensitive or trauma-informed practice and holding themselves accountable by continuing to, to measure and monitor um, those statistics and, and to see if the interventions are, are helpful. Um, and interventions could be, again, anything along the lines of ongoing professional development, offering education for students, including students of color in the decision-making process, and student, including students of color in their disciplinary committees, really making sure that when a child walks into their school, they feel safe and they feel supported and represented. No, that is so important and, and very unique what, what you have done as a practicing physician connecting with a school system. You know, tell us more about how can the healthcare system more broadly uh, connect with schools, understanding how much time children spend in schools, to your point, not wanting it to be a traumatic experience in and of itself. What should the healthcare system be doing specifically more broadly to engage with schools when it comes to youth mental health? Frankly, meeting meeting the schools, meeting the individuals where they're at. Um, it is it is hard for a child to have to take a half of a day out of school just to go to a therapy appointment or a psychiatrist appointment. And it's equally as challenging for their parents. Um, but if we are able to partner um, and directly partner and offer resources to the schools in our community, we can hopefully, one, um, change and improve access, but to off give teachers and give educators options. Um, you know, uh, some of the teachers I'll talk to, they'll, they'll tell me, well, I don't, I don't know what else to do. We don't have a school nurse or we have a school nurse once every other week. We don't even have access to a school therapist. And if we're able to provide those resources, uh, one, teachers have options. They have places to refer them. But um, second, secondly, the once we've integrated into the school system, we can provide that ongoing education. And if if we're finding again, when we're looking at those disciplinary rates, that things have not improved, ensuring that we're we're offering the school additional education, additional resources, um, and truly integrating into the process. Thank you for that, and also highlighting the importance of accountability and, and data and measurement. And I, I want to switch gears a little bit here. You, you talked about access, which is so important. And, and since the pandemic, we know that more people have engaged with telemedicine and have accessed mental health care specifically through telehealth um, at very high rates. 
Can you talk a little bit about how the pandemic changed access to mental health services and what role do you see telehealth playing in advancing access to mental health care and addressing health disparities? Headway actually did a survey of uh, over a thousand clinicians asking essentially that same question. What's what's changed pre-pandemic? Um, I don't want to say post-pandemic, but pre-pandemic to, to now. And what we found was that um, 70% of our clinicians had no experience with telehealth prior to uh, prior to COVID. And, you know, suddenly we were kind of all thrown in and had to become experts in Zoom or any other um, any other platform. And now when we poll our clinicians um, recently, about 43% of them say they prefer tele- telehealth and they prefer to conduct their sessions via a, um, a telehealth or televideo platform. And about 30% um, say that they they actually prefer telehealth because they're able to support a more diverse caseload. They're able to access patients in communities that previously did not have access, whether that's um, socioeconomic diversity, race, gender, ethnicity. Um, But now clinicians are able to expand um, their scope. They're able to expand the the geographic area that they're they're able to support. Um, And that, for me, is is one of the the greatest changes with, with telehealth. My my personal private practice is completely virtual. Even prior to Headway, I was seeing patients in Illinois. And I you know, was working with patients in the middle of a very, very rural town. And I partnered with their uh, PCP to see patients. And there there was no child psychiatrist available for over 100 miles. And so many of these people were um, relying on a very overstretched and overworked PCP to provide treatment. Um, but through telehealth, I was able to provide access and treatment to patients who otherwise would have no ability to find a child psychiatrist. And that change in how clinicians view telehealth is uh, incredibly exciting uh, for me to know that we now have a new normal where uh, we can provide care in the clinic or to be able to provide that telehealth service. Are you seeing from Headway's data or from your personal practice any difference in the digital divide that there are certain communities that are having challenges in accessing telehealth or has telehealth been able to help provide more access? Unfortunately, there there is that the ongoing digital divide and we, we have seen it unfortunately expand um, in certain communities where uh, broadband or internet access is not as fast or uh, communities that don't have um the, the technological exposure or skills to, to understand how to use a smartphone or how to, to log in um, to an online appointment. Uh, my mother uh, lives with us and every appointment she has, no matter how many times I show her how to log on, no matter how many times I show her how to get um, into the appointment, she still struggles. And so for every appointment, I know I have to be available. I have to offer that support to her. Obviously, many individuals and families don't have that support, don't have someone available to offer that. Um, and so certainly a, a lot of clinics and clinicians also use um, telephone visits, um, not as ideal as being able to see someone face to face, but we, we do, we will have to be more creative um, in expanding these telehealth options and ensuring that people in rural communities who may not have internet access can still um, be provided with the same level of care. But the, the digital divide persists. Um, and again, there, there needs to be systemic changes in order for that to really change. 
thank you so much for for highlighting that that issue of, of access. And quite frankly, thank you for the work that you're doing to really expand access to mental health care and address disparities. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. We really appreciate you being with us. These are such incredible, valuable insights and really help us advance the conversation around health equity and mental health. Thank you so much, Dr. Nicole Christian Brathwaite. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. What a great conversation with Nicole. She provided some really great insights. I learned a lot just hearing about all of those statistics about the inequities that we see in mental health. And unfortunately, they are widespread and pervasive. But I also was very excited to hear about Headway and what Headway was doing. And she made that connection around the fact that having a mental health benefit, it's important that you are able to navigate the mental health network and get access. And by having access, we can address inequities in health outcomes. And so really excited to hear about all that work uh, that she's doing at Headway. I agree, Shri. And, you know, what I really thought was unique and interesting was what she said about well minds and how they are connecting specifically with school systems to help them on their journey of addressing the youth mental health crisis and specifically the inequities that we see when it comes to children and access to care and and what happens within schools. I also thought it was important that she uh, really discuss the bias that exists within the healthcare workforce. So she talked about who gets access to certain types of medications, even things like who gets restrained and what the diagnoses are. I thought that was really important for her to discuss how bias and, and racism shows up in the healthcare system. Well, everyone, that's our show for today. Thanks for joining us on the Research and Justice for All podcast sponsored by CVS Health. Please do share this podcast with anyone you know who is working to advance health equity. And don't forget to subscribe to the Research and Justice for All podcast if you have not already. I also just want to remind our listeners that there are many resources for people who are looking for mental health support. For example, if you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis or emotional distress, please call or text 988 on your phone. That's 988 to get access to trained crisis counselors who can help. If you want to learn more about how to manage your mental health and about resources available to you, we also have resources at cvshelp.com. I'm Dr. Sri Chagaturu, and thank you for listening. And I'm Dr. Jonay Kaldun. Take care of yourselves and each other. Research and Justice for All is produced by Health Affairs. This season is sponsored by CVS Health. If you enjoyed this episode, the best thing you could do is share it with a friend or a colleague. It helps people find the show. Thanks for listening and be sure to check out Health Affairs' other podcasts, A Health Policy and Health Affairs This Week. Health Affairs, where health policy advances.